everybody. Well, this morning we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians a bit, so we're going to continue on from 1 Thessalonians, but we're also going to be in a lot of other parts of the Bible. So have your pen ready, have your Bibles ready, have your uh, journals ready, and we're going, to, we're going to launch in. This morning, though, I wanted to start by just asking a simple question for us, and you don't have to answer out loud. But do you ever question why God tells us to live for him? Maybe not even verbalize it, but I've even just thought that. Why, why does God tell us to live for him or to live for Jesus while we are on earth? We've, we've already been studying now 1 Thessalonians for, well, several months, and we've said that the overall theme of 1 Thessalonians is what? Very good. That, everybody was together on that. That was great. That was good. <laughs> Living for Jesus while we wait for Jesus, right? And so we've had multiple sermons, multiple opportunities to study the Word, and we see different ways in which we are called to live on the earth while we're waiting for Jesus, and also a lot of good things that are coming for us because we live for Jesus on earth. Blessings for us, obedience to the Father. But if you scratch even deeper than that, why in the first place did God even choose to do his plan this way? He's the God of the universe. He controls how everything goes down. That's at least what we believe about him. So why did he choose to have you and I live for him during this time period between now and when we die? Because isn't it hard? It's a struggle. Life is a struggle. It just seems like one struggle after another. Many disappointments, lots of pain, confusion. Why does God do that? What's behind it all? Is it just because he feels like it? Is it just because that's convenient? Or is there something grander behind the scenes? Is there a bigger picture? Or another way to put it, is there an ultimate goal that God has in mind? Is there an ultimate goal or target or aim of everything that he's called us to do, especially living for him? Throughout the book, of 1 Thessalonians, we've seen that the Thessalonian church is seeking to live for God. They're trying to live for him. They're trying to be obedient. And Paul's encouraged them for being faithful, for honoring God. And yet we've seen that they, again, time and time again, are being afflicted. They're being persecuted. They're struggling to live for him. It's hard to live for for Jesus. And so as we go into 2 Thessalonians, that same theme actually continues on. You can think of it as a continuation to 1 Thessalonians, written at a, at a little bit different period, but the same themes are there. And so what we're going to do is this morning is we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians for a little bit, and Elsabeth's going to come in just a minute and read all of chapter 1. But just to give us an overarching summary, basically the Thessalonian church is still struggling to live for Jesus. They're being faithful. They're seeking after him. They're even witnessing to others around them, but it's hard. And so Paul writes to them and gives them encouragement on how to continue to live, why to continue to live for Jesus while they're waiting for Jesus. And Paul will tell them about what's going to happen after they die, that when Jesus comes back, that he's going to right every wrong, that he's going to bring justice to the earth. So all the things that they're feeling is going on now. This isn't right. This doesn't feel good. Is going to be righted. So Paul tells them that. But Paul also, by the Holy Spirit, tells them the ultimate purpose 
even beyond just God coming back and that he will make everything right, he tells them the ultimate goal behind their suffering, behind their living for Jesus. So, as Elsabeth comes and reads, sorry, Elsabeth, I keep false starting you. Come, as she's up. As Elsabeth is reading, I would just encourage you, be listening for what is the ultimate goal, the ultimate purpose behind what God has called the Thessalonians to do. Thessalonians 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe, who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good, and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let me just pray for us. Father, as we come before you now, we ask that you would, that you would go forth in power through your word, by your Holy Spirit working inside of us, God, I ask that you would grow our understanding, grow our love and our affection for you. I pray that you would grow our comprehension of, of why we're here and what you're doing. Lord, help us to believe you more. God, give us fresh faith this morning to be challenged and then also encouraged to be corrected where we need to be corrected. God, we hand this time over to you and we ask you to do a mighty work way beyond what just a person speaking can do or what just a book can do. God, we ask you to do a mighty work this morning in our hearts. Please help us. Give us concentration. Give us understanding. Give us discipline to hear from you and to be changed. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so from that passage, and I know you guys have only heard it now once and I've read it 40,000 times. Did anything stand out to you as the ultimate goal, the ultimate reason of why we are called to live for Jesus? Anybody have any guesses? What do you think, Paul? Perfect. Exactly. Great job. I heard it from over here also. So his name would be glorified. Very good. That's the ultimate answer. 
All right, we're done. Everybody, if the Ravens game is a three. A th- yeah. <laughs> so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. So now we have the answer. That is the reason. That's the reason that we are called to live for Jesus while we're waiting for Jesus. Ultimately, it is so the name of Jesus may be glorified. But there's more here. There is a word that's in this phrase, in that first phrase, what Paul just said, that I think there's a hidden treasure that we may have missed. There's a word that you probably didn't pay much attention to. You probably didn't consider as you were reading it. I'm not sure if Paul even thought about it as he was saying it. But it's a word that's used in over 530 verses in Scripture. In fact, it's a primary word in over 530 verses in Scripture. It's a word that's used in almost half of every song we sing here on Sunday morning. You know what the word is? Name. Name. If you're looking at your handouts, it's actually bolded on them, so you may have been cheating looking at that. I don't know. Name. Open notes. Name is used over 530 times in the Bible in this type of context, like what we just heard. So excluding all the places where it says his name is Jesus, or his name was Jacob, or call his name... This is the use of the word name as we hear in 2 Thessalonians here, where it talks about the name of the Lord or the name of Jesus or praise his name. Even this morning, what we sang in multiple of our songs, one line went like this. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice as we lift his name. What other name remains undefeated? Only a holy God. And we also sang, by his blood and in his name, in his freedom, I am free. What's the deal with name? Why does the Bible use name in this way? Certainly Paul could have written in 2 Thessalonians, verse 12, where we were looking, so that the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. That would be a true statement also, right? I think I would say, yes, it is. But that's not what Paul wrote. This isn't some kind of like a translation error. In all these cases where name is used in the Old Testament and the New Testament, as I look through and study them, the Hebrew and the Greek, you know what the word is? Name. This is not a difficult word to translate. This isn't something lost in their culture to ours. It's the word name. And so what I'd like to do for us this morning is we're going to survey through the Bible. That's why we printed out that handout for you. So this is every single instance of the word name in Scripture, and it's over 530 times here. And we're going to use this as a reference point for us to better understand and love and comprehend and believe what God says about his name. And I think what we're going to do is come back to 2 Thessalonians toward the end and hopefully have a better appreciation for why Paul would say the name of our Lord Jesus and not just Lord Jesus. You up for it? It's a lot of verses. You ready? Okay, you got to have, uh, have your thinking cap on. Be ready to, to read and study. And I, I would encourage you, you don't, you don't need to. You do whatever works best for you. But I printed them out because I think it's helpful to actually look at the verses, 
circle them, highlight them, put a star next to it so you can study it and look at it later. We're not going to, obviously, not going to go through every one this morning, but we're going to work our way through and hit highlight specific ones. So I would encourage you, if you like to take notes, maybe take notes on that paper or at least make yourself some, um, some notes to look at later. Okay, so as we start in on this, on this challenge, on this task of surveying all of Scripture for the name, I think we can break the usage into three different categories, three different ways, three different uses of the word name. Now, as a heads up, it is awkward for me to keep saying the word name or name this way. So it's going to be a little bit awkward in some of the points, but, but do the best to kind of keep, keep along because I think that's partial, partially the point is that it's not a word that stands out to us on its own. So what we're going to do is look at the first use case. So this is on page two of your handout. Page two of the handout, 1 Samuel 1745. 1 Samuel 1745 is a familiar story of David and Goliath. And this is a use of the word name. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. So in this verse, we see that David has confidence to fight Goliath because he comes in the name of the Lord. David is going forward to fight Goliath because he has the backing of the Lord of the universe. He's empowered. He has the authority. He has the confidence behind him of the name of the Lord. A verse that's similar is Acts 3, 6. This is on page, sorry, I meant to have the page number up there. Page 13 of your handout. Page 13, Acts 3, 6. This is the New Testament. This is Peter. So Peter is talking to someone who's been crippled since birth, who cannot walk. And he says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. Rise up and walk. So in a similar way to David, Peter was able to approach this man who can't walk, and Peter was able to do something that Peter on his own cannot do. And it's because Peter came in the name of the Lord. He had the authority of the name of Jesus behind him. And so this is an example of basically the first way that I would say name is used in Scripture. I did my best to make this into a point that we can grab a hold of. The first way that name is used is to show that God empowers his people. To show that God empowers his people. And just as an example, that would, these are the phrases that say something like, in the name of the Lord, or speak in the name of the Lord, or I come in the name of the Lord. It's to show that God's power or authority or representation is behind that person thought of an example to try to help us with this a little bit. So what, what do I have here? What is this? It's money. That's not a trick question. This is money. This money is $100, five $20 bills that I have right here, okay? If I went out and tried to purchase some food with this money, I would be laughed at. Because on this money, it says, not legal tender, Learning resources, school money, this is not legal tender. This is made of paper, right? Just like real money. It looks very similar to a real $20 bill. But this doesn't have any power behind it. There's no authority behind these pieces of paper. That If I go to the store and try to purchase something, I won't be able to purchase anything 
of any value with these five $20 bills. This is money, but it has nothing behind it. Now I have in my pocket here Does this look any different? These are five $20 bills. They're made of paper also, just like this. And it looks very similar. It weighs about the same, maybe cost a little bit more to make, but not much. But what's the difference with these five $20 bills? These have the authority, the backing of the most powerful and wealthy nation in the world behind them. So that when I say, I would like to purchase a cantaloupe and let me give you some money for that, the person handing me the cantaloupe is assured that though they have some pieces of paper that's not worth anything on their own, that what's backed by this, what's behind this, is the currency of the United States of America. This carries the weight of the currency of our nation. And in a similar way, Paul, or Peter, carried the weight, the backing, the authority of Jesus when he healed the paralytic there. David had the authority, the backing, the weight, the confidence of having the Lord of the universe, the God, the creator of the armies of Israel behind him. So for us this morning, God has set us up for success. We have what we need. If we are doing what God has told us to do, if we are in line with what he's commanded us, with his plans, then we are guaranteed to succeed. We are guaranteed that we will have every resource that we need, that we have all the authority that we need, and we can go with confidence knowing that we are doing what the God of the universe is going to accomplish. He's doing it, and he'll do it through us. God empowers his people. So on page 11, you have Matthew 28 which is familiar to all of us, I think. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is a command. A command from the Lord of the universe. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So our Go Mission Church we have the backing of God behind us. When we go on mission to make disciples, when we go to baptize new believers, we are going with the authority of God. We can go with confidence. You see, our God has already accomplished everything. He has all the power. He has all the resources that he needs. He lets us take part of that. So I ask you this morning, do you feel that authority? When you go on mission, when you live for him, do you feel the backing of the Lord of the universe? Do you have confidence that God will empower you? Do you live your life in the name of Jesus? Or am I living my life in the name of Tyler? In the name of Tyler, I'm going to try to love Casey more selflessly today. If that's the name that I'm coming in as I try to love Casey better, I'm going to fail. Because the name of Tyler doesn't have the power to make myself love Casey selflessly. But you know what does have the power? The name of Jesus. 
the name of the Lord who has commanded me to love my wife selflessly. And so when I love Casey selflessly in the name of Jesus, with the backing of the Lord of the universe, I am going to love her selflessly. He will equip me and help me and give me what I need to do it. And the same when we go on mission, when we go to pub church next week, when you speak with your neighbors, are you speaking to them in the name of Jesus? It doesn't mean that all of a sudden we have all knowledge or all wisdom or that we ourselves are God, but it means that we are going in his name, that what we do, every step that we take as we are aligned ourselves with him, as we are following our good leader, we're guaranteed to be successful in God's economy. We're guaranteed to accomplish what God has set out to accomplish. And we can have confidence in that, just like David and Goliath. In the name of our Lord, in the name of Jesus. So that's our first use. In the name of the Lord, God empowers us. God empowers his people. All right, the second type of use. So that was one category, all right? So just kind of, as you look through your entire um, set of pages there that I printed out, Many of those scriptures, I think, fall in that category that I just described, given the idea that God empowers his people, that God goes with his people, that God works in his people, in his name, to accomplish his goals, his tasks. Another category, another type of use is shown in Isaiah 25. This is on page 7 of our handout. Isaiah 25, page 7. And this is a different use case. This is a different way that name is used. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. And Psalm 103 is similar. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. The psalmist and Isaiah here are praising God, clearly, but instead of referring to a specific name of God, although they could have, and there's other psalms and places in Isaiah where they do, in these instances they chose by the Holy Spirit to, still, to instead say praise or bless his name. To bless his name. God has many names like Yahweh, Lord of hosts, King, Creator, Father, Holy One, Redeemer, Rock, Almighty, Lord, Emmanuel, Jesus, the Christ, and there's many, many, many more. But he has all those names because there's not a single one that can represent him completely. God is too big for one name. He's too big for one description. He cannot be contained in our little language or our little expressions. God is infinite, of infinite value, infinite worth, but also infinitely to be explored and explained. We will never, we will never be able to fully exhaust everything that God is. We are finite. God is infinite. He's infinite. He's infinite. He can't be contained in a title or a reference. And so that's the second way that name is used in many places in Scripture. It's to use to show that God is infinite. God is infinite. He cannot be contained. He cannot be encompassed in one word or even one phrase or even in all the names that we have described for him. 
And an example of that is praise your name. Bless his name. In this sense, though, when we praise God, when we sing those songs that say something like that, and we read these scriptures, we are praising everything about God. We're not just praising Jesus. We're not just praising the Father or the Spirit or the Creator. We are praising everything about who God is. And it should bring to mind the thoughts and the emotions and the feelings about who God is, our experiences with him, our salvation in him, his creation of the universe, his saving a people for himself, the fact that he is going to come again and save us, keep us, take us for eternity with him in paradise. All of that is encompassed in the name of Jesus, in praising his name. It's all that you can think of when you think of God, and then some, and then going on infinitely in every direction. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians 1-2, it's another place, page 13 on your handouts if you're looking at that. I think it's the same meaning, but it's used in a little bit of a different way. 1 Corinthians 1-2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. I think in this case, to call upon the name of the Lord, to believe in the name of the Lord in a similar fashion as praising him is to say, I believe in all that he is. I am calling upon, I am throwing myself upon, I am, I am like crying out to him in everything that God is for my salvation, for my forgiveness, for my help, for my confidence. I am calling upon the name of the Lord. And that name represents God in every direction, like I said, infinitely. All that he is, all that he's going to do, all that he has done. I think a way to think of this is to think that it's beyond saying, I'm a Christian. Although that's true. It's to say, I'm a follower of the name of Jesus. I believe in the name of Jesus I'm a sinner. I deserved wrath. I was saved by his grace alone. I'm being sanctified today. I'm being united with other believers for his glory. I'm being renewed. I'm being shown grace and mercy on a day-by-day basis. I have a reward. I have paradise waiting for me. All that is included when we say, I believe in the name of Jesus. I call upon the name of Jesus. I am calling and believing in all that God is and all that he's revealed himself to be and all that he's done. So I have an example song for us, one of the many, many that we sing. After you heard this sermon, I bet you're going to like, oh, that's, oh, that's, oh, that's a. One of the songs is, oh, praise the name. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forevermore. For endless days we will sing your praise, O Lord, O Lord, our God. What we're saying when we sing those words is, Oh, praise the glorious, gracious, loving, kind, infinite, powerful, just God of the universe. 
Oh, praise his infinitely great and glory, grace and justice and power and mercy and love and kindness and provision forevermore. For endless days. Of course we're singing for endless days because we can't exhaust who God is. And that's why when we sing a phrase like that where it says his name, that can bring to mind to us everything that his name encompasses. What are we singing when we sing this? We should not just say, oh, praise his name. All right, I think his name is, yeah, it's God. Okay, praise God, our Lord, our God. We go way beyond that. God's given us a memory. He's given us minds. He's given us emotions and feelings and recollection and understanding so that when we sing praise his name forevermore, we're calling up everything that God's worthy of praise for. And that's what we're describing. That's what we're singing out. That's what we're proclaiming to one another. So I ask you this morning, how big is God in your soul right now? Can God be contained in your view of him? If you were to start writing reasons for praising God, would you run out of things to write? Because if the answer is yes, then that means you have some more to explore and to know and to believe. So I ask all of us, myself included, what parts of God have you never praised before? Do you believe there are parts of God that you haven't praised before? Because there are. What part of when we sing, oh, praise the name, do you have that's gapped? That's missing still. Because scripture is clear, because God is infinite and infinitely great, he's infinitely worthy of our praise and inexhaustible in our praise as well. We've been with him for 10,000 years in paradise. There'll still be new aspects of God that we are learning and understanding and giving him glory for. It's hard for that to get in our brains, isn't it? We're so constrained right now. But church, it's true. There are parts of God that we don't praise fully yet, or we don't know fully yet. And a similar question I'd ask us is, what parts of God have you never believed before? What aspects about who God is, who he's revealed himself to be, don't you believe yet? Because there's holes there too. If we haven't fully yet comprehended everything that God is, and we won't, by the way, then that also means that there's parts of him that we haven't yet to fully absorb or understand or believe or throw ourselves to. So I encourage you this morning, either jot down specifics, or maybe we just leave with the encouragement to, let's go explore our God. Let's search the scriptures and find out more about who he is. You may have read this book cover to cover, but there's more there that you haven't seen yet. You may have been a Christian, a believer, raised in church all your life for 50, 60, 70 years, and there's more for you. There's more. He can't be exhausted, church. He's infinite, and that's why we praise his name. That's why we call upon his name to represent that. Okay, last one. Last category. This one I think is highlighted in Psalm 72, verse 19. This is page 6 of your handout. 
Psalm 72, 19. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. In this use, in this case, I think God's name represents his public reputation. It represents how he is displayed, how he's seen, how he's recognized by all of creation. It's not just a way to to be identified, not just a way for us to address him, but it's putting on display all that he is. It's how he's recognized. It's his fame. Let me give you an example of a name like this. Let's just say that you're on a game show right now, and you just won, but part of your prize, I would say that you've won a new car, brand new car, just made, just manufactured. But you can't see it. You have to pick behind door A or behind door B which car you're going to take. And I'm not going to give you any information about this brand new car, except for one is made by the company Larry's Automotive, And the other one is made by Toyota Motors. Which one would you think most people would pick? I'm sure there's some haters of Toyota, but (laughs) in general. The point is, one of those brands, one of those names, without seeing the car, without seeing the specs, without knowing the reliability, we would say, oh, I've heard of that name. I don't know anything about cars, but I know Toyota's a car. I'm not so sure about Larry's. And that's the type of name that we're describing here. It's the fame. It's what does that name carry along with it? What thoughts and emotions are stirred up? What are people thinking about when they hear the name of the Lord? When they hear the name of God? What weight does that carry? What understanding? What attributes? You see, God desires for his public name to be glorified. For his reputation to be to be known, for his attributes to be put on display, for people to see and to wonder at and to be in awe at. John 12, 28. I love this passage. I wish we had time to do a whole study on this, but we'll be real quick. Page 12 of your handout, John 12, 28. This is Jesus talking, and then we hear the Father audibly answer him back for people to hear. Jesus says, Father... Glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And if you continue reading in that passage, Jesus even says, You just heard that, people, for your benefit, not mine. God wanted them to hear and to know, I will glorify my name. It's what God is about. He is supremely passionate about the glory of his name, about the reputation, about his fame, about the holiness of his name. Every single thing that God does is for the sake of his glory. Everything that God does is for the sake of his glory. He wants the whole world to know And beyond the world to know how great and how glorious he is. And that's our third use of the name. 
Name is used to show that God shall be glorified. God shall be glorified. And an example of that is glorify your name or holy be your name. In fact, church, in Isaiah 43, 7, page 7 of your handout, we're even told that that is why we were made. That is why you were created was for God's glory. Isaiah 43, 7, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God made everything for the glory of God because God is all about the glory of God. Let that settle in for a moment. At this point, you may have kind of some thoughts or feelings that, that doesn't that sound like a bad thing? Aren't we not supposed to be about glorifying ourselves, making ourselves look great? Isn't that negative? Isn't that bad? How can God be all about making his fame great, making his name known, making his glory shown? But let's continue to tease out this because it's true that it is wrong for me to glorify myself or to make myself great. That would be haughty. That would also be deceitful because I'm not the greatest. I'm not perfect. I'm not holy like God is. So if we continue this in thinking, if we were created for God's glory, if that's why we were made, if that was what God's mind had made up of the purpose for creating every one of us sitting here was for his glory, and if he is a supremely powerful, good, beautiful one, then the very best thing that God can offer us the very best thing that God can do for us, the most loving and giving thing for God to offer us, his creation, is himself. It's for him to put himself on display because unlike me, he is the best. If he said anything else other than that he is the greatest, that would make God a liar, deceitful. That's not a good God. Church, there is nothing that can satisfy us or bring us more joy than us enjoying God himself. Than us recognizing and proclaiming and ascribing glory to his name. Glory to his name. Psalm 105, verse 3, page 6 of your handout, says this about God's name. Psalm 105.3, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord, what word? Rejoice. rejoice, rejoice. And this is important for us to understand. Church, we have the most joy, the most satisfaction when we are glorying in his name, when we are glorifying in God's name. Do you know what this is? This is an avocado tool. I don't eat them, but my family does. This tool was 
carefully created for one job, and its job is to make an avocado ready to eat by humans. It's got this blade thing here that you hold the avocado, you go around the outside, it cuts just the right amount, it's not too sharp, it'll hurt you or go through it. It's the right depth, it's the right serration. And then it's, once you open the avocado in two halves, what's next? You use this thing, which you grab, push it against the pit or the seed, and it has just the right spacing for an avocado seed that it pulls it out. And then it's got these little fin things that you scoop out on the inside, and it slices up the avocado and pulls it all out for you. This is specifically made for us being ready to eat an avocado. Now, if I use this tool instead for, I don't know, cleaning my toilet, brushing my teeth, planting uh, vegetables in the garden, this tool will be very unsatisfied. It will be the saddest of all the avocado things if it's used in that way. If I use it to build a house, it's not going to work very well for that either. This tool was made for avocados. In the same way, church, we were made to glorify God. And when we try to glory in anything else, including us, especially us, we're like me using this avocado tool to brush my teeth. Unsatisfied, in pain, unhelpful, not accomplishing the job I was supposed to do in the first place. From the Westminster Catechism, our kids have been learning this, and maybe you know. What is the chief end of man? Is that right, Tate? <laughs> to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's our main end. That's what we were created to do. Glorify God and enjoy him. Not as a separate act. As part of glorifying God to enjoy him forever. To do what we were made to do. To be satisfied eternally doing exactly what we were built for. So if the primary purpose in God's heart is to display his glory, then think on this. Is there a greater crime that could be imagined than for someone to try to steal his glory? Someone who is less than him, created by God to proclaim his glory, instead says, no, 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 I'm, I want to be the thing that God glorifies instead. I want to be the thing that other people look at and say, oh, he's great. He's glorious. Is there a worse crime? Is there a greater act of treason? Not to mention insanity than for someone to do that. And church, that's exactly what we have done. That is the plight of mankind. That's what Satan did first, right? I want to be like God. And that's inherently a wicked thing because Satan can't be like God. No angel can be like God. God is the only one with that name. Everything else is under him. Everything else is meant to proclaim who he is. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden, they were in a small way proclaiming themselves to be God. Oh no, God must be wrong. I choose what's wrong and right. 
I am the one in authority to say what's right for me. And in that moment, they are trying to strip God of his glory and take some for themselves. I am the mighty one. I am the one in authority. I'm the one in charge. I'm the one that is knowing more than what God knows. Isaiah 48, I don't have this on the screen, I'm sorry, but it is in your packet, page 8. God says, my glory I will not give to another. God will not share his glory, what is due him, to any other. Not because God's haughty, remember, but because God is the only one deserving of that glory. It would be wicked for God to let someone else take that glory away who doesn't deserve it, who can't satisfy us. And because of that, God will be glorified, church. God will be glorified in his justice when he rightly punishes the rebellious creation with his eternal wrath. You see, despite man's best effort to try to steal God's glory away, we can't, can we? We are still just creatures. And so the act of trying to steal God's glory is itself sin. God's glory remains on God. And he will be glorified even among people trying to steal his glory in the way that he enacts justice on them. In the way that he punishes the worst of all crimes. Just like we know a good judge punishes wrongs that have been done, God is a good judge. He is just. He can't let wrong, especially wrongs against his name, the worst of all crimes, go unpunished, and he won't. Every attempt to steal God's glory will be dealt with with God's wrath, his punishment. The right amount of punishment, by the way, for trying to steal glory from the infinitely glorious God. And the story could end there for us. And God would still be glorious and worthy of glory and praise if all creation was damned and punished. He would still be glorious, church. But God has even more to show off. In maybe his greatest display of his glory is his grace. You see, God wants to display the glory of his grace to the creatures who tried to steal his glory away from him in the first place. God is so glorious that he's not just contained in being justice and being just in punishing, although he could, but he goes beyond to show off his mercy and to show his grace, to show his forbearance, to show his love, to show his tenderness to his creatures who don't deserve it. God rescued us, and he did it so his name would be glorified. Look at page 6, Psalm 79. Page 6, Psalm 79. Help us, O God, of our salvation. For the glory of your name, deliver us, And atone for our sins. Why? For your name's sake. 1 John 2.12 I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's 
sake. Even Jesus dying on the cross, even God paying the penalty that we deserve to pay, was to show his glory, was to proclaim his name as great and as glorious, to show what his grace is like, to show what his mercy is like. God has demonstrated that he is just, but also loving and gracious and compassionate and merciful. And there's no greater proclamation of his glory. It goes on and on. And church, this grace is offered to you today. This gift, this display of God's glory is available to anyone who will believe in his name. To anyone that says, yes, I believe that I was wrong, that I was a sinner, that I have tried to steal your glory, and I fall on you to take the punishment that I deserved. And in doing that, I recognize that I'm giving you the glory for my salvation. It's nothing that I can do. It's all him. It's all Jesus. I encourage you this morning, if that's not something you have considered or done, or if you feel tugging at your heart, to glorify God by accepting his gift to you, by believing in Jesus for the salvation of your sins, then come to him. He's glorified if you do. He loves it. And then proclaim it. Proclaim it to people around you. Proclaim your salvation. Describe his grace. Describe his glory. He's worthy of it, church. He's worthy So, let's go back to 2 Thessalonians. Why do we live for Jesus? What's with the suffering and the hardships? Why did God have us go through this life? Why are we still here in the first place? Why did he just take us to heaven when we're saved? We know we're not doing anything to earn our salvation. We're not trying to make ourselves pleasing to God. That's all done by him through us. So what's the ultimate goal? The ultimate goal is so the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. Church, we are part of something bigger than us. Your life is a part of something bigger than just your life. You are part of the infinitely great narrative of the Lord of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, to proclaim his glory. And he's doing that in your life today. He's broadcasting who he is through you. We are living testimonies to the glory of God. We get to show off who he is to the rest of the world. We get to proclaim him. We get to praise him. We get to speak about him. We get to act like him. We get to model who he is. We get to give people a reason for why we act differently than we would by default. We get to show off the glory of our God and of our king. So I'd ask us this morning... How's your perspective? Who are you glorying in? What's the ultimate point of your life? What's the ultimate goal? What's the ultimate end of your living, of your acts, of your striving? Whose name's sake are you doing what you do? Is it for yourself? Is it for your spouse or your kids 
or your work? Who are you trying to promote, to make look good, to bring glory to? Our time on earth is very short. The Bible says it's like a vapor. We are in a unique time of history right now for 20, 30, 50, 80, 100 years. That's it. It's the blip on the large timeline like Matt showed us. This right now is the time that we get to proclaim God's grace and his glory through living in a sin-filled world. Because it's going to be over soon. I could kick the bucket today and I'm never going to show myself living among sin and in sin and striving to show God glory in his grace in that way. Every breath that we have, like Matt talked about this morning, every breath, every heartbeat is meant to proclaim who he is right now in this moment, in our battles and in our struggles, in our disappointments, in our confusion. It's all supposed to point to while we're here, while we're here in this moment where there's lost that don't know him yet, is supposed to proclaim, this is who God is. This is what salvation is like. This is what's available to mankind. This is what's been offered. This is who God is. Look at his glory. Look at his grace. Look at his mercy. He is just. That's how we get to live. I just want to remind us in closing, when you get a raise, when your children act well, when the weather is nice, Who are you glorying in then? Because when cancer is diagnosed, your spouse leaves you, your children don't want anything to do with you, if you are glorying in your own name, you will have nothing. You'll be back to this. You won't have a purpose. You won't have hope. You won't have any power or something you can do to fix it. Because we're glorying in the wrong things. Our hope and our purposes are in the wrong things. It's not what we were made for. But when we put our eyes to the Lord, to the glory, do his name, when our sin is forgiven, when peace comes, when grace is shown, when sin is conquered, then we are doing what we were meant to do. We were acting like we were meant to act. And there's no greater joy for us. So that's it. That's the three categories. I'm a little bit long. I apologize. But what I want to encourage you to do is take that handout. You can throw it out if you like, but I'd ask you not to. Consider holding on to that. That's God's word. And I can't tell you how much my soul has been helped by just picking passages all throughout. Flip through it. It couldn't be easier to see them. And just think in your mind, okay, what of the categories or attributes or truths about God that we heard this morning is true about this passage. What's God asking you to do about that? What's he asking you to believe about that? Church, I really believe that this could change the way we read our Bibles. As you're in your reading plan, as you're singing along on Sunday morning, I think that that little word name can carry more weight for us now. I pray that it does. I hope that it does. I pray that our belief and our love for God is stirred up all the more. That we love him more and we live for him more because of it. Let me just pray for us. Father, you are due all glory. Your name is what deserves the glory. God, I ask you that you would work in our hearts 
that what we heard here this morning would not just be analytical or academic, but God, that our hearts would be stirred up and changed to believe you more, to see you as greater and more glorious, to rightly see ourselves in light of who you are. Help us, God, please. Help us to believe you and then help us to live for you. Help us to live as you created us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.